for the week of November 21st, 2013. This is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. And here, as always, to lend their insight and opinion on the week's news are my two co-hosts. Also in Washington is Catherine Hamilton, the founder of the energy policy shop 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how's it going in your world this week? It's going great. Stephen, do you realize this is our 20th episode? Wow, I actually did not re- realize that. Yeah, it's awesome. Nice. Good We've celebration. Been going for a while. Yeah. <laughs> And in New York City is Jigger Shaw, clean tech investor and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, uh, what's the word up in New York? Well, you know, as always, I like to surprise you. So I'm actually in Minneapolis for the next leg of my book tour with the good folks at Fresh Energy that passed the uh, 450 megawatt solar mandate. So 20 weeks of shows, 20 different cities. Hey, you know, it's catchy. How's the book tour been going? Really well, you know, I think that um, people are starting to recognize what we all believe, which is this is the largest wealth creation opportunity on the planet. Indeed. All right. Well, this week we are covering the biggest, the hottest, the most exciting event of the year, the annual meeting of the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. All right. I can feel that some of you are getting ready to click over to the Huffington Post to see today's top 10 baby animal pictures. But trust me. This is a more exciting topic than it appears. So with us in Boulder, Colorado, uh, home from his trip to the NARUC meeting in Orlando, is our guest Cameron Brooks. Cameron runs the energy consulting firm Tolerable Planet Enterprises, and he's the former vice president of policy at the home energy management company Tendril. Hey, Cameron, welcome to the Energy Gang. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So has the high worn off from the Energy Regulation Fest at the NARUC meeting? Well, I'll tell you, the warm has certainly uh, rubbed off because I'm looking out my window at two inches of snow on the ground, and that's not what it was like down in Orlando. Yeah, you're in Boulder. I'm jealous here in D.C. I'm a big skier, so I wish I could look out my window and see snow. I follow all these pro skiers and mountains on Instagram, so all I can do is just look at my phone. Well, come on out and we'll report, record a podcast from uh, the slopes out here. That'll be a good time. <laughs> All right. And we have the next best thing. We have you here over Skype. So uh, let's talk about the NARUC meeting. Kidding aside, um, this is an extremely important gauge for how state regulators and utilities are thinking about uh, disrupted forces that we talk all the, all the time about on this show. And in the first part of the podcast, we're going to chat with Cameron about what he heard this year about distributed generation, uh, dynamic pricing, and customer engagement issues. Then in the second part of the show, we'll briefly revisit the net metering debate in Arizona, where a compromise has been reached, and we'll ask what it means for the future squabbles over compensating solar. And in the third segment, we'll talk biofuels, uh, recognizing troubles in the industry. The EPA has proposed downgrading the renewable fuel standard. We'll We'll try to put it into context. And of course, at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you may not know. So let's get into it in the first topic. This week, state regulators gathered in Orlando at NARUC's annual meeting. They addressed bread and butter topics like outage management and customer billing, but they also had sessions on the utility of the future and the surge in distributed generation. We heard some progressive views on these issues from outgoing FERC chairman John Wellinghoff last week. And but but much of the action is really on the state level, not on the federal level where Wellinghoff is operating. So it's important to know what's going on in the minds of these other regulators. 
Uh, Cameron, what was your sense for how these looming changes are being handled at an important meeting like this? I mean, what were people talking about? Well, you know, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head earlier when you say that Nehruk is a, a great gathering because it, it lets you gauge sort of what the commissioners are thinking and to a certain degree just, you know, what, what the conversation is about. There's not necessarily a lot of business action that happens at the meeting, but but about half the commissioners from the country show up and it's a great chance to meet them in the hallways um, at a more honest, personal level and sort of hear what they're talking about and thinking about in a way that, you know, they're more candid than they would be if you appear before them in their home state. So, you know, I mean, there were probably three big things that seemed to be the themes of this meeting, both in the program and in the hallways. You know, a lot of discussion about new EPA rules coming down, um, a lot of discussion about resiliency and sort of a, a corollary to that being cybersecurity and distributed generation and net metering. I mean, that, that probably had some of the biggest airtime in terms of the panels. I think four or five different panels had some kind of utility the future discussion as you highlighted or uh, net metering conversation what's the context in which they're talking about things like net metering the value of solar distributed generation is it a more conservative conversation are they really curious about what's coming are they thinking progressively about this i mean what is the range of opinions uh, and speculation that you see well, you know, I wish there were, well, maybe I don't wish this, but, you know, there's really no monolithic view. So I think what's interesting is the typical format is a, a set of presentations from a, a group of panelists. And then whichever committee the, the panel is happening in, because Nehruk is organized into a few different committees, then the commissioners will ask a few questions. And that's where I think things really get revealed. And you know, for me, when it comes to distributed generation, there there are a few commissioners who sort of self-identify as being champions or trying to think about things in new ways. But to me, the probably the biggest headline is the lack of really a lot of uh, counterpoint to a, a narrative that is aggressively being pushed forward right now, which is that solar is a cost, solar is a cost, solar will disrupt this industry in, in harmful ways, and uh, we need to really re-examine net metering. So, you know, that was a theme I think that a lot of panelists hit on in a way to make it seem as though that was just an obvious truth. And they're just you know, while a few commissioners, surprisingly, most of the most interesting questions come from commissioners whose experience is more in the telecom area than in the electricity area. And I think that's because, you know, they've seen a lot of these changes before. So they don't take it as just received wisdom that the, the only entity out there that can handle these kinds of uh, changes is the incumbent utility. Cameron, um, just so so that we can put this in context for folks who are out there listening who may not have been to one of these neighborhood meetings, it's not as formal as a state proceeding, but it's not like the people who are in the audience can shout out, you lie, or something when, when the presenters are 
are giving a pres- when someone's giving a presentation, only the commissioners can ask questions. So it's very structured. There's no ability to like put together a panel that's kind of you know let let's let's try and put together something that shows all viewpoints. It's really kind of like having congressional testimony where different people put forward different different speakers and. There isn't necessarily um, a narrative that will will allow for both sides. It just totally depends on who gets picked to speak. Is that not the way it's normally done? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's a, it's a very um, I'd say casual but rigid structure in the sense that there is a panel they they usually present, and then the you know commissioners on that committee will put up their tent cards and ask a few questions and. You know, I'm sure someone could yell out, you lie, but they, they probably would get shunned pretty quickly. And so you're right. And the, the, the agenda setting process is reasonably opaque. So usually there's a commissioner or two that might sponsor a panel and then they essentially get to choose, you know, who's going to be on it? What's the discussion going to be about? And that can be very interesting or it can be just a platform for, you know, pushing forward a certain perspective that, you know, the new EPA rules are going to be costly and, you know, net metering is something dangerous is essentially, I think, the tone that, that a lot of the discussions took place in. So I've only been to one of these meetings and I didn't have anything else to compare it to. Do they talk about this in the present tense, or are they still talking about this as something that's going to happen way out? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think there's a little bit of both, and and especially some of the discussions about the utility of the future, you know, obviously sort of project out into the future. But um, but a lot of it is happening in, in the present tense, and again, I think that's where, um, you know, some of the, the narratives that we've seen playing out in other parts come to the fore. So, you know, net metering today is some kind of cross-subsidization that is uh, being born on the backs of the low income. That's that's a narrative that came forward very clearly. Um, but But I would also say, you know, there are some interesting... Uh, commissioner counterpoints and places to watch I me. Mean, not surprisingly, I would say New York sort of rises to the fore. Uh, they've got a new chair there who is very clearly uh, of the mindset that um, distributed generation in a post-Sandy world is not an option that needs to be debated. It's something that they're going to have to do to build in some resiliency. And she was was asking a lot of questions about things like a DSO or a distribution uh, service or system operator. So in many respects, it seems like taking a lot of these open market principles that are at play in the organized markets in New York and PJM and Neepool and other places and bringing them down to the distribution level. So I think that becomes a, a question in the present tense, but with obvious future impacts. So, you know, my my big thing with Nehruk meetings and also the electric utility sector is that it always seems like people are discussing liabilities and risks. Do they actually have anything upbeat or positive to say about their business model, like growth opportunities, areas of interest? I mean, you know, places where they might be able to actually grow their revenues. 
Well, look, I mean, it, I think it would probably be too blunt to just say that, no, there's no discussion like that. But the tone is a little bit more staid than, um, you know, talking about the great growth opportunities. Um, but it, and it varies a little bit from commissioner to commissioner, clearly. But, you know, as a body, as a group, I think there's a little bit of a mindset that is, you know, let's let's keep this ship on course let's keep moving slowly and incrementally that's kind of that's how we operate we're economic regulators we're, we're not trying to be too entrepreneurial that's not but that's not quite true right i mean ultimately when you think about where environmental groups are going and frankly where venture capitalists and the u.s department of energy are going everyone is on track to trying to electrify more of the grid or more of our energy, sorry. I mean, whether it's electric vehicles or whether it's motors or whether it's, you know, other things, we're trying to move away from number two, number four, number six fuel oil and moving to electrification. There seems to be extraordinary opportunities, which is why Solar City just went public and, you know, it looks like we have a, another five or six IPOs on the docket. It, it just seems like when you look at the Georgia uh, decision to strike down the solar fee uh, yesterday and and all of the other things that are happening there's a lot of really interesting excitement in John Wellinghoff's voice and a lot of other commissioners like Audrey in New York. It, it, it just seems odd to me that David Owens at EEI and others would just take a negative view on the utility business model. It, it might be good for the service providers out there that are seeing an increased market share and delivering new services to utility customers, but the investor-owned utilities are going to mostly lose revenue. I mean, you even said this when we talked about RWE, Germany's second biggest utility, shifting its business model, it is downsizing itself to become this service provider and integrator of renewables. And it might have to divest from fossil fuels, and it will shift its strategy to make itself smaller and eventually lose revenue. That's not a very exciting proposition for a lot of utilities. So I can understand why they would be defensive. Um, and on top of that, electricity... Uh, growth is very minimal, if not flat, here in the U.S. Uh, there aren't a lot of growth opportunities outside of some of these other services that are being provided by other companies um, to the utility. So I can totally understand why they're defensive, Jigger. Well, sure. I mean, I can understand why AT&T was defensive in the telecom space, but SBC and some of their other competitors at the time were very excited about the space. Generally speaking, when you have an industry that's as diverse as the electric utility industry, they're not monolithic. And I think there should be some folks who are saying, we see a lot of growth opportunities here. We're investing heavily. I mean, First Energy and others have announced multi-billion dollar investment plans in renewable energy. So there should be some optimism balanced with the pessimism in a normal conversation. I think where EEI is really screwing themselves on this is that there's actually an extraordinary amount of optimism at the state level. And for them not to highlight that at their meeting means that they're basically going to lose this argument. There's absolutely nothing they can do to stop our progression on net metering and all these other pieces if they actually are not projecting a positive um, view of their industry. They can't just be saying, you know, we're against everything. Well, and Jigger, the, I think the average uh, amount of experience as a commissioner that each commissioner has is about three years. So you have people, you know, very few of these people actually come out of a clean energy business. Now, Audrey Zibelman, the chair of the New York 
you know, public utility commission ran a demand response company. I mean, she understands all about distributed generation, um, but most of them don't. And where do they get their information? I mean, who is lobbying them um, constantly in the states to provide information and to school them? And you kind of have to look at that and see who the influences are. Yeah, I mean, I, Catherine, I would agree with you wholeheartedly there. And, and Jigger, I agree with you that, uh, you know, in general, the tone should be more positive. But I think that, you know, those of us who want to see clean and distributed renewables moving forward, you know, a place that, that we are not playing and where we're losing the game badly is once the legislation moves over into the rules stage. And, you know, essentially that's a two-year process with dozens of utility lawyers on one side and an intermittent uh, consumer or environmental advocate on the other side. And then there's dozens of small poison pills that get inserted. And I'm sure you're much more familiar with these on the ground than I am in terms of, you know, caps on net metering, disconnect rules, requirements or rules against any kind of financing and leasing. So, you know, they very quietly uh, can go and talk to the commissioners and there's there's very little, um, well, there's opportunity, but, but, you know, there's not a lot of people showing up to provide other ways of looking at it that fit within that regulatory structure. I guess I'm just not willing to... To, to submit on that. I think I agree with you completely, Catherine, in terms of the inexperience of utility regulators are generally chosen because they've got two kids going to college and it's the highest paying job that the governor can give them to, to help fund their child's education. But what we find is, is that their inexperience is to our benefit. They, they are far more interested in learning about Tesla than figuring about you know, how to deal with some arcane depreciation rule on coal plants that are going to be affected by EPA, et cetera. And so, I mean, I, I don't know. Look, I, I am in Minnesota today because even in the face of ALEC and all of the other things that's happening, we passed a 450 megawatt mandate here and everyone's excited about it. The same thing's true in Mississippi and Alabama where we're doing great work on energy efficiency. The same thing's true in many states like Utah and, and Idaho. So I, I just don't see us losing. I see us actually outfoxing the utility in almost every state that we're working in. Cameron, I want to switch from uh, supply side to demand side, given your experience over at Tendril. Of course, Tendril works with utilities to figure out customer engagement strategies to get them to use less energy, to visualize what they're using, and, and to use IT to uh, reduce energy demand in the home. And I, you know, I think we take for granted, because all of us are so focused on this industry, we take for granted all the really cool technologies and customer engagement strategies that are emerging out there, either for getting contractors in the home, for letting consumers see what they're using, or for getting them engaged in residential demand response. And I'm wondering if you hear any talk about some of these uh, innovative companies or, or technologies that are out there at a meeting like this. I mean, is it on the radar screen? Well, I think it's on the radar screen, but I think it's a, a little bit to the side. And, you know, I, I would certainly highlight some of the points that both Jigger and Catherine were making, which is that the, most of the commissioners are very eager to learn. And they really do, you know, they've come from either another industry or they're getting themselves into areas that they're not familiar. And that makes it very easy for a company like Tendril or Tesla or others to come in and sit down and have a meeting because because they, they really, truly do want to learn about this stuff. 
um, when you go to a meeting like this, you know, it, it's uh, a little bit less about some of those more innovative players. And, you know, look back to, to part of the theme we were just touching on, a, a lot of those kinds of innovative services are predicated on the idea that consumers will have good access to information coming out of smart meters, that there will be dynamic rates that are coming to the fore. And in both of those areas, again, I think we're seeing, you know, very, very slow movement. And I don't think it's by accident. I think the fact that outside of Texas and California, no consumer has the ability to reasonably access or listen into their smart meter is, is not a design oversight. Uh, it's a pretty deliberate move. And so, you know, that's a, a contributor to the fact that uh, Tendril has, has abandoned a lot of that part of the business that they were going after because, you know, four years later, you still can't get access to the information from a smart meter. I do a lot of, uh, I spend a lot of my time tracking what new and open proceedings are before state commissions. And I'll tell you, I did some research recently on dynamic rates that was put into a report and published. There's no activity at any widespread level in most of the states to go anywhere beyond a pilot level for dynamic rates. So some of these business models are predicated on things where uh, the regulatory process can be used to slow down the advance. Cameron Brooks of Tolerable Planet Enterprises, thanks for coming on and giving us a roundup of what some of these regulators are thinking about. Good conversation. Well, thank you. It's been great to be on. Yeah, thanks so much. Better you than, than me at NARUG this time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you at thanks, the next Cameron. one, Catherine. Yeah, I'll be there. On to our second topic. We move to Arizona once again, where there are new developments in the net metering war. And this pairs nicely with our conversation around the importance of state regulators. Um, after two days of public comments, the Arizona Corporation Commission agreed to a compromise on net metering last week. Commissioners voted to charge solar customers 70 cents per kilowatt each month in order to offset transmission and distribution costs. The solar industry isn't excited about it, but it was much better than the $8 per kilowatt suggested by the state's largest utility, Arizona Public Service. So is this compromise a win for the solar industry? Uh, Jigger Shah, what do you think about what the outcome was? Well, politically, it was certainly a win. I mean, I think that when you look at the way CNBC covered it, the New York Times covered it, et cetera, they all covered it as the, you know, the solar industry coming into their own and really beating back you know, a belligerent Arizona public service. But – you know, in, in, in truth, I think we let the, you know, fox into the hen house. And now that we have this, um, this mechanism, it's, a, it's possible that the number could just keep going up every year, um, which is not a good thing. And I think you saw that from the Solar Energy Industry Association uh, announcement, which basically urged caution here about not celebrating a victory, but actually saying that uh, this was very troubling. Mm -hmm. So do you think that the ACC, the Corporation Commission, will does it set them on a path to keep raising it there in Arizona? I think it sets the environmental and solar industries on a path to buying to Arizona Corporation Commission seats in the next election because those guys are elected. Um, and in the last election, Arizona Public Service took one of our big advocates off the off the commission um, by spending a lot of money. And I think you're going to see a, a, a nuclear sort of um, – 
um, you know, uh, war here on the amount of money that gets spent on ACC elections. But we expected some sort of charge, right? And we're probably expecting either a variation in how net metering is structured or just some sort of fixed charge in other states. So does this inform the the, the price of that charge in other states, um, or does it set it on a slippery slope for potential increases in those charges? I mean, what does it mean for well, other state net metering battles? Well, we're, we're, we're trying to isolate Arizona. If you look at what happened yesterday, the Georgia Public Service Commission vacated the entire fee conversation that Georgia Power tried to have. So we got a full success there where the Georgia Public Service Commission said no fee whatsoever. And in, and in fact, the Georgia Public Service Commissioner there um, – was at Nehruk a few days earlier before the vote and actually said that he was going to vote that way at Nehruk, um, which was very really interesting. And in Minnesota, where I am now, the legislature um, forced um, the government and then Xcel Energy to do a value of solar study. And the guidelines that they set down, which the draft was just released last week, made it clear that environmental benefits, all of those things have to be included in the value of solar study, which means that uh, I think that we're going to come out at you know a couple of pennies above retail rate. And so I don't think this fight is over. And I think if solar industry advocates start to just acknowledge, which many people have when I've talked to them, that we should pay for the grid and that we're not adding enough value to not pay for the grid, that we are going to lose this fight. And so solar you know, advocates out, out there have to buck up and not, uh, not start running to the middle like uh, you know, most of our you know, weak-willed politicians like Jay Inslee in Washington State have done. <laughs> so I know that you're very clear on the need for the solar industry to negotiate from this far position in order to not lose the debate. But there's an interesting parallel here to the production tax credit in that the wind industry has known for more than a decade that the production tax credit has had a target on its back and that they face this battle every year, every couple of years trying to um, extend the production tax credit. And rather than try to loop around and say, okay, how can we restructure this and take some of these arguments over here and create a a policy that addresses some of these concerns, I'm fearful that the solar industry is just going to keep talking about how solar doesn't add a cost to the grid, keep fighting for existing net metering policies, and not recognize that this battle is probably going to spread to a lot of different states and it's going to be the same thing over and over again, and not create something new and try to embrace some sort of um, new way to value solar that might help them in these debates. I know that you probably vehemently disagree with that, Jigger, but do I just feel like there are some parallels to how the wind industry has totally screwed up the messaging on its production tax credit. And no, this will get worse even, over I time. I don't disagree with you at all, and we should hear from Catherine on this, but I, I don't disagree with you at all. Look, I mean, the reason why I wrote that, you know, very popular um, op-ed in Green Tech Media around the fact that we needed to change our process. And what I said was, look, we should stay very powerful on that side, but that we should start introducing the value of solar study. I mean, I was very, right. very actively in favor of that. And I've been working with Travis Bradford at Columbia University or with the state of Minnesota, with Georgia and others, and getting the solar industry to start embracing this process. Because right now, the value of solar study is completely made up by which utility is paying to get it done. But hopefully in the next two years, we get a common set of principles that Black and Veatch and others all agree to, including Edison Electric Institute, so that we can actually have a fair way of transitioning away from net metering. So I completely agree with you. I just don't
don't want to like give up the fight while we're trying to figure out the other landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think in Arizona, you know, you had APS spending almost four million dollars in lobbying for this, and a forty to fifty dollars no, a month. Nine million dollars. Nine. Oh, gee. Yeah. Okay, so forty to fifty dollars a month extra on, and that's sort of on the low end. I heard up to a hundred dollars a month in addition would just kill the solar industry. It would totally kill the solar industry. It was not about trying to make it work or trying to real. It was about killing it. So I thought they actually did pretty well considering. I thought they fought really well. But if you look at what Alec is doing, and we can talk about this a little bit more too, is, you know, they've got this resolution, this American Legislative Exchange Council, or they have this resolution where there are a bunch of these whereases, whereas, you know, 20 different things. And, and those, as Cameron was saying before, are sort of like, if you believe in their whereas is if you believe the world is the way they say it is, then, you know, then you're really going to be screwed when you get to the end and say, therefore, we have to do these three things. You know, so what we have to do is change what the what the assumptions are and try to find out what those values are that we need to add. So that the assumption isn't that if you do this, you're going to mess up the grid. And one of, one of their major assumptions is the electric power industry is leading the transformation to make the grid more flexible and more resilient to meet the growing demands of our digital society. I bet there are a lot of people who would say that's really not true. I, I do want to step back here and provide some context because this is a relatively new story. Folks have heard us talk about the American Legislative Exchange Council, this group that brings uh, corporate paid interests together to write model legislation and then pitch it to legislators around the country. Um, Actually, in the last couple of days, they released this uh, draft document showing that they're going to start developing model legislation around net metering in 2014, and they've got a meeting coming up in Washington, D.C. I actually wrote a story about it this morning on greentechmedia.com, so you can check that out. So with ALEC involved in this process, um, it it raises the need for the solar industry to be far more proactive, and I think it also raises concerns that ALEC will be able to use some of its might to spread out these net metering battles beyond Arizona and California and Colorado to a lot more states and stretch the solar industry thin. Yeah, no, that's that's very likely, and I'm sure that's exactly what their strategy is. But, you know, the thing that people don't really realize, I think, is that the the fact that the solar industry stock price has gone up 140% this year really matters. There's a number of investors right now that are calling me saying, hey, I missed the 140% run-up. Do you think it's going to run up even more? Where do you think the stock prices are going to go for these guys? Are you actually getting a lot of um, – you know, really interesting um, data points and momentum around like the solar city bonds that just got issued, et cetera. And so as these things percolate and people start making money in their portfolios, that's universal. There are rich people in every single, you know, country. And there are also, you know, folks who are retiring who have these stocks in their portfolios. If they see these stock prices going up, they're become more hopeful. And, you know, they're, their sort of visceral reaction against solar starts to melt away and they start to say, actually, I want solar on my house. I don't want you to make that illegal. All right. Well, let's go on to our third topic, biofuels. Biofuels have taken a beating over the last couple of years. And now the Obama administration has proposed cutting mandatory 2014 requirements for biofuels by 3 billion gallons. That sets the blend wall for for gasoline at about 10%. So is this a recognition of the struggles within the biofuels industry or a way to appease conservatives and environmentalists? Catherine, what's your take on the decision-making behind these proposed cuts at the EPA? 
Oh, wow. This is such a complicated topic, too. Um, and it has just so many different angles to it. So when you talk to the folks who are working in the sort of advanced fuels space, and that's not the corn ethanol space, I would say, you know, advanced biofuels, cellulosic side, you know, they're saying this is going to absolutely cripple them and that it's unjustified that they have enough. Of, there is fuel availability that you're going to kill them right at a point when they're really starting to ramp up. They'll have plenty of fuel. The issue is infrastructure. And the reason the infrastructure hasn't been built out is because of the oil folks. So, you know, there's this issue of the advanced side getting hit particularly hard. And then there's the other side of corn ethanol that just has all kinds of environmental issues that, um, you know, that's that's destroying lands that have been, you know, for conservation that are now growing corn and have all this runoff. And and, and yet that's where the political um, forces are, are in the, you know, on the, on the corn ethanol side. So it's hard to kind of try to get support for the advanced and, you know, really the, the hydrocarbon side that can do drop-in-place bio, biofuels that really are, going to be game changers when so much of the political force and support is on the corn side. Of course, there's the economic angle. I mean, when this uh, RFS was passed in 2007, that was before the economic downturn. And that was when we thought that gasoline demand would increase. So lowered gasoline demand has definitely played a factor. You mentioned that the, the oil industry hadn't created the distribution network for these fuels and the uh, ethanol industry and advanced biofuels industry claims that that's the big problem, that they are ramping up demand, but that the oil industry just hasn't built out the infrastructure to distribute the fuels. And that's what's caused a, a lot of issues within the industry. And then, of course, you just have these broader political concerns within the Obama administration, the pressure from environmentalists and the oil industry, and increasingly conservation groups. That we, we all passed around this AP investigation of the environmental impact of the biofuels push, and that is really starting to put some pressure on the administration. I mean, well before the investigation came out, there were a lot of environmental groups and conservation groups that were putting pressure on the EPA. This is definitely a multi-pronged issue, and uh, clearly the industry has faced some troubles. I mean, let's look at the cellulosic biofuels industry. The EPA revised targets um, recently from 1 billion gallons for next year to 6 million gallons, and that just shows a lot of the technical and financing barriers that we've seen in the cellulosic industry. So very complicated issue here. I mean, I think the thing is is that you really do need to get really deeper into this. And so when you think about the huge amount of investments that the BPs and the Chevrons and the even Exxons have made in advanced biofuels, a lot of those were made with good intentions. And then what happened right after that is that the compliance payments for um, meeting the requirements uh, under these mandates um, dropped through the floor. And they said, well, why would we continue to invest more money in this when we can just buy these compliance payments and not actually invest in the technology? The compliance payments have gone way up in the last 18 months. And so everyone's revisiting, figuring out whether they actually want to kickstart their renewable fuels uh, programs again. So it's not unlike sort of SREX and that kind of stuff in the solar industry. And so there's real reasons for the oil industry to go back and forth. I don't think they're trying to kill biofuels. I think their issue is that there's no real stable policy here around the price of these compliance payments. 
um, for them to actually base a business model on. Separately, the environmental groups, look, I mean, they, they have a real uh, beef here with all the conservation land that's going into um, agriculture now, which was, were never intended to. The soil losses through the roof. And so for folks who really care about the planet and ecosystems, ethanol really isn't that great for them. But then you have other folks who are really pushing on the ethanol side because they said, look, they're a political force. Right. Like Wesley Clark, sorry, is basically saying this is a these guys are a political force. Um, ethanol is the vehicle by which to carry the water for advanced biofuels. And if you get rid of ethanol, then no one actually is interested in talking about advanced biofuels. Yeah, especially when to, to be considered an advanced biofuel, you, the requirements are that you have to have 50% greenhouse gas reduction over traditional gasoline. And most of these have 60 to 70% reduction of greenhouse gas over gasoline. And, I, and so they feel like, look, we've done our, our bit. Um, and, and a lot of these have no blend issues because they're drop-in fuels. So they, so they behave, they're like green crude. They behave like crude or they behave like ac- they're hydrocarbons. They behave like as gasoline. And which is why in some instances, the oil refiners would be happy to get this stuff. They would be happy to have this and build their business. Um, I think what's going to end up happening is, and what's happening now is DOD. So DOD can help build those first plants for them. The issue is you wanted the RFS to be there so that after that first plant was built, you'd have the certainty of having a policy in place that you would that you would have a market there for. So I think DOD can help get some of these guys. They're, they're going to build the first commercial scale um plant with uh, drop-in hydrocarbons for advanced biofuels. It's like a 10 million gallon plant, and they're going to be selling at $4 a gallon, which is amazing. Um, But they can help build those first plants. And then um, and then you need the policy like an RFS to to come in on the back end so you can sustain the industry. Hmm. The change here is that the EPA isn't really thinking about the RFS anymore as a way to promote new infrastructure development. It's kind of a way to support the existing capacity out there. And then they can change the advanced biofuels target with incremental changes in technology. But it's almost a major statement on the industry with the with the EPA saying, well, we're just going to keep things business as usual and we don't necessarily see massive changes in the market. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to what you were saying on the wind PTC and the net metering piece. Ethanol uh, guys have said, look, the RFS is the BL end all. This is the way it's going to work. I think now that we've been under the RFS for some time, we've realized that, sure, it's okay for the ethanol industry, but it's actually not a great way to support advanced biofuels. Catherine's right on the military part, but the military, you know, for all of its, you know, announcements has not really been a good credit counterparty like, you know, like we have in the solar power purchase agreement. Uh, standpoint. I mean, just to put this in perspective for you on the advanced biofuel side, let's just talk about natural gas for a second, right? With all of the success in the natural gas industry, Motley Fool is reporting that the the domestic diesel market is 25 billion gallons a year. And and T. Boone Pickens' clean energy uh, company, which is publicly traded, delivered just 200 million gallon equivalents of natural gas in 2012, right? And so when you think about the scale of the problem that we have here, the policy is just not up to the scale of the problem that we have here. So we're, we're, I think we're turning to California and their clean fuel standard. We're turning to other folks to try to figure out a new way because the RFS just ain't cutting it. Fascinating subject. So let's wrap up here and tell our listeners something they do not know. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, what do you have this week? 
Yeah, so I am not in Warsaw, um, but I'm getting notes from Warsaw from friends of mine uh, for the climate uh, for the climate negotiations. And I just I, I heard some pretty interesting observations that I wanted to kind of pass along. So this is all done, you know, with the backdrop of what happened in the Philippines. Um, and, and at the same time, a coal conference happening in Warsaw at the same time, um, there's sort of these physical and political changes that are happening. So Australia's political changes, you know, they're moving away for a car from a carbon tax into a cap and trade scheme. Japan is having all kinds of problems because of Fukushima and having to figure out what they're going to do. Um, with that backdrop, it sounds like business is being cited more, more and more as really an important constituency to come up with a lot of the lower carbon, you know, transformation. So, and business and innovation being seen as this is how we're going to have to get it done. And there were two websites that somebody sent me um, based on the negotiations in Cancun and Durban. There were two programs that were started, the Green Climate Fund that has a website, and they're housed in South, Decre South Decre Korea. They're going to launch December 4th. And then this Climate Technology Center and Network um, that's housed in Copenhagen, and they do tech transfer. And these were both sort of interesting um, programs that have been started that are going to try to help get technology out to folks who need it um, in places where climate is, is having particularly devastating impacts. But I thought it was interesting that business is kind of being cited now as is super important to come in. Because when I was in Copenhagen, business was there, but certainly not a key part of the conversation. What I found fascinating as I've looked at coverage is that you know, Australia, which has a new prime minister, which has scaled back its climate efforts. Uh, you know, some of the negotiators were reportedly in talks wearing T-shirts and eating snacks and acting disrespectful. Uh, we saw a lot of the developing countries walk out of the summit. And then a lot of the environmental groups walked away as well. So although this isn't a huge meeting in terms of big things coming out of it, things are really starting to unravel and people are just feeling so frustrated with the process. Are you hearing that as well, Catherine? Yeah, I've been reading those same reports too. And, you know, who's, who's at fault, who needs to change? How do we count things? Who pays? It's just, and, and it's, everything's a moving target because of all these natural disasters. I mean, and the economic changes in developing countries as well. Well, I mean, I think part of this is, you know, so I wrote an op-ed on this, um, which is in the Huffington Post, which got a lot of play yesterday. And um, look, I think that you know we have a real fight on our hands within our own community. I got a lot of pushback from my op-ed around the fact that, look, this particular negotiation should not be about who pays, but about who invests. And instead, everyone's talking about who pays. The humanitarian stuff and that kind of thing could be done in other channels. There are other conversations around how the world community comes together around a typhoon in the Philippines. But mixing it into here is a it's just a fool's errand. It's not going to get to a finish line. All right. Well, that brings us to you. Jigger Shah, tell us something we don't know. Well, you know, um, I'm going to be completely self-serving on this one and let everybody know that I'm going to be in Arizona on December 3rd and 4th for my book tour. So that should be an interesting um, book tour and interesting meeting. I'm already getting some rumblings that people are going to make a little protest out of it. So that'll be fun. Who's going to make a protest? Like the, the utility um, folks? 
Yeah, there's a lot of utility folks who are not happy with the uh, aggressive role that I played in the APS debate. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, you're known for your your aggressive comments, and I actually heard that they someone read your name in one of your quotes during the net metering hearings last week. Well, they actually put it into their testimony, and then they read from that testimony. So I <laughs> thought it was I thought it was kind of funny. I guess it's uh, it's flattering. Who who knew that uh, creating climate wealth was going to be uh, civil disobedience? <laughs> <laughs> well, any press is good press, right, Jigger? <laughs> well, you know, I, sometimes you're the you're the expert on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, I've got a story that kind of illustrates some of the contradictions in U.S. climate and energy policy, and. Anyone who listens to the show or reads my writing knows that I'm a big advocate of moving away from fossil fuels, obviously, uh, as quickly and dramatically as possible. But I I don't think I'd label myself anti-fossil fuels because I do understand how difficult the transition is and historically what fossil fuels have brought us in terms of uh, historical wealth creation and modern conveniences. Um, with that said, we have very, very distinct choices to make. And the Department of Energy just announced this week that it was going to put about $5 million into research for uh, methane hydrates. And methane hydrates are this methane gas trapped in a crystal structure, which is uh, sometimes found beneath permafrost or on the ocean floor. And they're really highly dispersed and very expensive to turn into usable natural gas. But, uh, for example, Japan, which is looking for any technology to make up for its nuclear gap uh, is looking to invest pretty heavily in methane hydrates. So the problem here is that the U.S. Geological Survey estimates that global methane hydrate reserves contain more carbon uh, than all known reserves of fossil fuels. I mean, that's crazy. Think about that for a minute. And so this $5 million announcement from DOE is a drop in the bucket compared to its clean energy investments, but it's a signal that our government despite its calls for addressing climate change and still willing to promote some of the most carbon-intensive, difficult-to-reach resources. And I think that's something that people should be paying attention to. Um, again, this is a small investment, but it's, it's a worrisome resource that they're putting their money into. The, 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 the problematic all of the above. And below. And below. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the links to the stories we covered on our podcast page at greentechmedia.com. Be sure to subscribe to this show on Cloud, iTunes, and now Stitcher Radio, a service that a lot of people like. And you can find links to all those platforms at greentechmedia.com. Please send along questions, comments, show ideas, anything you want. You can email me at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. Thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, and just a reminder that we are going to be off next week for Thanksgiving. Uh, Catherine and I will both be traveling. Uh, Catherine, have a great holiday. You're going to be in a cabin in southern Virginia? Yep, in a farm uh, near Roanoke, Virginia. I'm so excited. Right. And um, and I want to wish everybody Thanksgiving and also a happy Hanukkah for the people who have it at the same time. Yes, absolutely. And Jigger, you have a great holiday as well. Thanks. I'm going to be in Kentucky, so we'll see how many uh, pro solar and wind guys are down there while I'm there. <laughs> what, what are you doing there? Do you have family there? Yeah, my wife's uh, uncle lives there, and so he's invited us in. It's going to be a good time. I, I really enjoy it. It's in Hopkinsville, so you know a lot of military folks there and stuff, so it's fun. 
With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. Happy holidays. Thank you.